Hi, everybody. Grab a Bible, open it up to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 4. The picture on your screen is Triana LaVey. She's a reality TV producer and a talent coach for social media influencers. By her own admission, one of her favorite things to do is take selfies. Now, typically, if you don't like the way your selfie turns out, you have some options. You could always delete it and try again, or you could utilize an app and apply a filter, or you can do what Triana LeVay did. You can just have plastic surgery. In her quest, in her words, for the perfect Instagram selfie, Miss LeVay dropped $15,000 for a nose job, a chin implant, Botox, and fat grafting. There was no filter or Photoshop that was good enough for her. And now, as she told Nightline, she said, I now have the face that I always thought I had. I look like myself, but Photoshopped. Now, she has a word for some of you. In the name of being famous and successful like her, she says, not everyone is born beautiful. And if you can get a little help from an app or a nip tuck, then more power to you. So you just run with that, do what you need to do with her great advice. It is no secret that you and I live in a time of great narcissism. A worldview based on the Greek god Narcissus who was infatuated with himself. John Orberg in his book Soul Keeping cites a study from the Journal of the American Medical Association that says over the course of the 20th century and into the early years of the 21st century, every generation is three times more likely than the previous generation to suffer from depression. So every generation, there's the exponential three times more likely. What is the cause for such a dramatic exponential increase in depression? Psychologist Martin Seligman writes this. He said, we've replaced church, faith, and community with a tiny little unit that cannot bear the weight of meaning. That's the self. We're all about the self. We revolve our lives around ourselves. Ironically, the more obsessed we are with ourselves, the more we neglect our souls. Now, as we continue our study through Daniel, one of the things that we've already noted is this book is not a book about Daniel and his friends. It's not a book about King Nebuchadnezzar. This is a battle of the gods. Daniel is a defense of the one true God as supreme over all the false gods. And now as we come to chapter four, we're not gonna see a battle between God and one of the false gods of Babylon. We're gonna see a battle between God and a false god that all of us know quite well, the god of self. Because the most powerful false god in Babylon was not Marduk or Bel or Nebo, one of the ones that they worshiped. The most powerful false god in Babylon was the god of self. This is the false god that drives all of the other ones. And it's not just true for Babylon. It's true for you and it's true for me. It is the god of self that we worship the most. It is the god of self that we sacrifice the most for. It is the god of self that drives and dictates much of what we do in our lives, which really shouldn't surprise us because it's been this way since the very beginning. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are there, our first parents, and Satan tempts them to eat the forbidden fruit. And the text tells us they saw that the, the fruit was pleasing to the eye, that the fruit was good for food. But what made them cross the line into sin 
was when he told them that by eating the fruit, their eyes would be opened and they would be like God. Genesis chapter 11, it continues. Mankind builds a tower called Babel, and the purpose of the tower is to show off the might and the glory of mankind. The tower is to go all the way to the heavens so that we could declare to God, you're not the only one that belongs here. We can be in the glory of heaven with you as well. And years later, a nation will flourish in that same place and they will adopt the name of that tower, a nation called Babylon. And the empire will epitomize this kind of life. It's all about my might and my glory. And it's all very well illustrated in their king. Nebuchadnezzar ruled at the height of Babylon's glory and power. Now the Bible and history tell us much about King Nebuchadnezzar. He reigned for 42 years over Babylon, which is more than half of the time that Babylon reigned supreme in the world. So he's their chief ruler. He was known to be a great administrator and a great military general. Under his military leadership, Babylon defeated Egypt that had been the reigning superpower on the earth for centuries. Nebuchadnezzar built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven, ancient, the seven wonders of the ancient world. And biblically, he plays a vital role in the history of ancient Israel. He defeats King Jehoiakim. We learn that in Daniel chapter one. He takes members of the royal family and the nobility back to Babylon in exile. He is the great and the powerful ruler of a nation that has been self-obsessed since its very beginning. He is the poster child for self-obsession. He readily serves the God of self. Yet, ironically, it's through some of these exiles from Jerusalem, Daniel and his friends, that Nebuchadnezzar comes face to face with the one true God. And he will discover that the God of self is empty and it is unsatisfying. Let's go to chapter four. Look at verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. We'll deal with the all this here in a minute. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Do you see the God of self? It's, it's everywhere. He is fully committed to worshiping himself. And he never should have gotten to this place. In fact, it is unbelievable that Nebuchadnezzar would say things like this. He's already seen God's greatness. He's already experienced God's power, yet he is still infatuated with himself. It is mind-boggling that he would still be at this place in chapter four. Now, let me remind you of some context. In chapter two, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. The dream is of this huge image. It has a head of gold and arms and chest of silver and a belly and thighs of bronze and legs and feet of iron and this small stone that's not of human origin will crush that statue and then that small stone grows and becomes a huge mountain that fills to the ends of the earth. The dream greatly troubles him so he calls in all of his enchanters and his sorcerers to tell him the dream and its interpretation. They can't. But Daniel can. The dream is a vision of the kingdoms to come. Uh, Babylon is the golden head full of glory and splendor. 
But then the Persians are gonna come, they're the silver ones, and then the Greeks are gonna come, they're the bronze ones, and then the iron rule of the Roman Empire will come. But in the days of the Roman Empire, that small stone, the kingdom of God, set up by God himself, is gonna crush all other kingdoms. It will supersede and outrank all other kingdoms, and God's kingdom starts very small, but it will grow over time to encompass people from every tribe and nation and language on the earth, Sitting in a room in Matthew, Illinois, God's kingdom will grow. Nebuchadnezzar responds well. Look at chapter 2, verse 46. And then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. It's at this point that we begin to see a tug of war in Nebuchadnezzar's soul. He's only been worshiping himself this entire time, but now he's encountered the one true God, and he doesn't quite know what to do with him. Your God, Daniel, so he, he's distancing himself, but he acknowledges the power and the might of how great God really is. Well, in chapter three, the, the God of self wins the tug of war. Nebuchadnezzar erects a 90-foot golden statue of himself, and commands the entire empire to worship it, which makes perfect sense. He, he's already worshiping himself. Why not have the entire empire join in that worship? But a few men refuse. Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to bow the knee in worship. So the king heats up the furnace and throws the men in, and the king looks in, sees four men walking around. The fire hasn't harmed them. This fourth man is supernatural. He doesn't know what to do with that. Calls the men out of the fire. Chapter three, verse 27. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree... Any people, nation, or language that speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. So again, he has a personal face-to-face -face encounter with the one true God. You'd think that two chapters in a row he has miraculous encounters with the God of the universe. You'd think that'd be enough to defeat this tug of war with the God of self. It's not. But God's not done with him yet. In chapter four, we find the contents of a personal letter written by Nebuchadnezzar to the entire world. And Nebuchadnezzar can write a letter to the world because he rules the world. So he sends out a letter on his behalf to the entire world chronicling his personal experiences with God. And in it, he tells us of another dream. After all that he's seen, after all that he's already heard, God tries to get through again. The dream is of a large tree that grows exponentially. It grows to provide shade and refuge and food for the entire world. But a messenger from heaven comes down and declares, cut down the tree. Cast it out into a field until the tree comes to know. Verse 17. 
The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Now, that's quite a message for someone like Nebuchadnezzar. You're not in charge of anything, king. God, the Most High, rules over the kingdom of men, and he puts in leadership over it whoever he wants, the lowliest of men. Well, once again, Nebuchadnezzar calls in all of his wise men and enchanters and sorcerers and they can't give him the interpretation. Now, apparently, the king hasn't learned anything yet because they can't tell him anything he wants to know. We learned that from chapter two. But now in comes Daniel yet again, and Daniel saves the day. He gives the interpretation to the king, and here it is. He said, king, the tree that has grown to encompass the earth, that provides refuge and shelter, and shade and food to the whole earth, king, you are that tree. Your kingdom has grown in power and glory and you provide for the entire world. You're the tree. And king, the tree that heaven declares, cut it down, you're the tree. You're the great, glorious, mighty tree that heaven is going to cut down until you learn, the end of verse 25, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Daniel then pleads with him. I mean, this is a clear judgment from God. Daniel pleads with him. They've been serving together now for decades. Chapter four, verse 26, Daniel continues, and as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. King, stop worshiping the God of self. Stop being so self-obsessed. You turn to the one true God. After all that Nebuchadnezzar has seen, after all that he's experienced, and now with this final dream and its interpretation, which he knows is sure because Daniel knows what he's doing. Every interpretation Daniel gives comes true. After this clear threat from the Most High God to strip the king of his mind and of his kingdom, after the king has seen God's power and experienced it repeatedly, after he hears of God's impending judgment on his self-centeredness, after all of that, it really makes the verses we read earlier all the more crazy. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? What an idiot. After hearing all of this from God on high, that's his response. Look at how great I am. Look at how amazing my kingdom is. Now we can easily look at Nebuchadnezzar here and judge him thoroughly. How stupid can one person be? After you've seen and heard all of these things, how could you do such a thing? But know this, in this tug of war, 
that exists in the soul between God and the God of self? I'm Nebuchadnezzar, and so are you. We don't throw stones at Nebuchadnezzar because we are him. We, we know God. We know of his power. We know what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. We've experienced his grace. We've experienced his love. Yet, with all that we know, with all that we've seen, we're still enticed by the God of self. This was a lesson learned the hard way for Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, right on the heels of hearing all this from God, he makes this ridiculous statement about his glory and his majesty. And the next verse says, while the words were still on his lips, the most high God from heaven speaks and fulfills the judgment that he had promised. He's driven from his palace, stripped of his mind. He lives like an animal. He has to learn that there is one true God and it's not him. And he finally learns. We've had hints of it in chapter two. There's more hints in chapter three. He finally gets it. Chapter four, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will amongst the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He finally gets it. Notice the stark contrast between his two speeches. Verse 30, he was all about I, me, and mine, but now he's all about God and he and him. His kingdom is eternal. His kingdom rules over all. He gets it. This is Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. He goes from acknowledging the reality of who God is to worshiping that God. A couple of quick takeaways I think are relevant for us. First, we have to learn the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. The Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. As November 3rd rapidly approaches, we should memorize that statement and repeat it to ourselves multiple times a day. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom he will. The second takeaway is this. The antidote that defeats the God of self is humility. Humility is what one author called the freedom of self-forgetfulness. The problem with the God of self is, is we become self-obsessed, self-centered. Humility is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. And to come to a place of humility requires one thing of you. It requires that you put yourself in proper context. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, let me read a passage from the book of Romans. I'm gonna read the end of chapter 11 and the first few verses of chapter 12. Oh, the depth 
of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice what he says next. For by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Oh, how great and glorious is God. Who's ever given God advice? Who's ever given something so great to God that God was in their debt? He doesn't need your help from him, to him, through him are all things. Not you, him. And because that's true, you don't think of yourself more highly than you should think. If you compare yourself to other people, you will always find someone that you're better than. That's the game we play, right? We say things like, well, at least I'm not as bad as. As we look around our world, there's, there's always someone you can find who's better than you. Not that we necessarily look that direction, but it's true. That just leads to shame and embarrassment. What we look for is someone who's worse than we are, who's done more terrible things than we've done, and all of a sudden, we begin to swell with a little bit of pride. See, I'm not that bad. Don't compare yourself to other people. It never works out well. Instead, compare yourself to God. Put yourself in proper context because when you compare yourself to God, there is no comparison. So maybe in your world, you're a really big deal. You're super important and your world doesn't spin unless you're at the center of it. Good for you. But when you compare yourself to God, you are not a big deal. You are a nobody. Maybe you have some power in your job. I mean, how cool is that? You bark some orders and people do what you say and you get to direct some things and you're, again, important. When compared to God, you have no power. You're weak. Maybe in your eyes and in the eyes of maybe a lot of people, you're a really good person. You've got loads of morals and personal ethics. Good for you. When compared to God, you are a wretched sinner in need of saving. So we don't don't have to prove to ourselves, we don't have to prove to anybody around us that we're really a big deal, that we've got a lot of power and we are such a good person. Friends, the most high God delights in saving weak, sinful nobodies. In fact, it's the only kind of people he saves. Now, it it took much for King Nebuchadnezzar to learn this. 
I wonder what it will take for you to learn it. This is the last we hear of King Nebuchadnezzar. We've walked with him through a lot of his life, a lot of his reign, and a lot of history, but this is it from him. Chapter five opens with his grandson on the throne in Babylon. So after this, he's dead and gone. But he finally learned his lesson. And here are his final words to humanity. Chapter four, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Some of you are learning this lesson for the very first time. Others of you still live in this tug of war with yourself. For the next couple of minutes, we're gonna take communion together. We do this every single week. We kind of pause everything else and there's a couple quiet moments and there's some music playing in the background and we take this little piece of bread, we take this little cup of juice and with them we're reminded of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ who willingly stood as a substitute in our place, who died to save sinners like us and how great he is. What's that time for? Is that time to take off the cellophane and take off the foil so that when you're ready to take communion, you're ready to go because you got some prep work now for communion you got to do because of all this stuff? That's not what this time is for. I mean, you do need to take the cellophane and the foil off, of course. But the whole point of these couple of moments of quiet is to come before the Most High God and once again acknowledge who he is and what he has done and surrender one more time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for King Nebuchadnezzar, for ironically the example he provides for us. That he came to faith in you, the one true God. That he got it. May we get it. May we learn from his mistakes, from his foolishness. The God of self is empty and unsatisfying. That if our world revolves around ourselves, it is a small and pitiful world indeed. So may we take the next couple of moments and be reminded of your glory and your greatness. That your kingdom rules over all. That our hope is not in the kingdom of men and the nations of the earth or the rulers of those nations. Our hope is in the eternal kingdom to come that is ruled over by the eternal king. Thank you for Jesus who gave his life to save sinners like us. It's in his name that we pray, amen.